This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joy Chan. Mysticism: A Study in Nature and Development of Spiritual Consciousness by Evelyn Underhill. Second Half of Part One, Chapter Six. Two. It was natural and inevitable that the imagery of human love and marriage should have seemed to the mystic the best of all images of his own fulfilment of life, his soul's surrender, first to the call, finally to the embrace of perfect love. It lay ready to his hand, it was understood of all men, and moreover it certainly does offer, upon lower levels, a strangely exact parallel to the sequence of states in which man's spiritual consciousness unfolds itself, and which form the consummation of the mystic life. It has been said that the constant use of such imagery by Christian mystics of the medieval period is traceable to the popularity of the Song of Songs, regarded as an allegory of the spiritual life. I think that the truth lies rather in the opposite statement, namely, that the mystic loved the Song of Songs, because he there saw reflected, as in a mirror, the most secret experiences of his soul. The sense of a desire that was insatiable, of a personal fellowship so real, inward and intense, that it could only be compared with the closest link of human love, of an intercourse that was no mere spiritual self-indulgence, but was rooted in the primal duties and necessities of life. More, those deepest, most intimate secrets of communion, those self-giving ecstasies which all mystics know, but of which we, who are not mystics, may not speak. All these he found symbolized and suggested, their unendurable glories veiled in a merciful mist, in the poetry which man has invented to honor that august passion which the merely human draws nearest to the divine. The great saints who adopted and elaborated this symbolism, applying it to their pure and ardent passion for the absolute, were destitute of the prurient imagination which their modern commentators too often possess. They were essentially pure of heart, and when they saw God, they were so far from confusing that unearthly vision with the products of morbid sexuality, that the dangerous nature of the imagery which they employed did not occur to them. They knew by experience the unique nature of spiritual love, and no one can know anything about it in any other way. Thus for St. Bernard, throughout his deeply mystical sermons on the Song of Songs, the divine word is the bridegroom, the human soul is the bride. But how different is the effect produced by his use of these symbols from that with which he has been charged by hostile critics? In the place of that sensuous imagery, which is so often and so earnestly deplored by those who have hardly a nodding acquaintance with the writings of the saints, we find images which indeed have once been sensuous, but which are here anointed and ordained to a holy office, carried up, transmuted, and endowed with radiant purity, an intense and spiritual life. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Who is it speaks these words? It is the bride. Who is the bride? It is the soul thirsting for God. She who asks this is held by the bond of love to him from whom she asks it. Of all the sentiments of nature, 
This of love is the most excellent, especially when it is rendered back to him who is the principle and fountain of it, that is, God. Nor are there found any expressions equally sweet to signify the mutual affection between the word of God and the soul as those of bridegroom and of bride. Inasmuch as between individuals who stand in such relation to each other, all things are in common, and they possess nothing separate or divided. They have one inheritance, one dwelling place, one table, and they are in fact one flesh. If, then, mutual love is especially befitting to a bride and bridegroom, it is not unfitting that the name of bride is given to a soul which loves. To women mystics of the Catholic Church, familiar with the antique and poetic metaphor which called every cloistered nun the Bride of Christ, that crisis in their spiritual history in which they definitely vowed themselves to the service of transcendent reality seemed, naturally enough, the veritable betrothal of the soul. Often, in a dynamic vision, they saw as in a picture the binding vows exchanged between their spirits and their God. That further progress on the mystic way, which brought with it a sharp and permanent consciousness of union with the divine will, the constant sustaining presence of a divine companion, became, by an extension of the original simile, spiritual marriage. The elements of duty, constancy, irrevocableness, and loving obedience involved in the medieval conception of the marriage tie made it an apt image of a spiritual state in which humility, intimacy, and love were the dominant characteristics. There is really no need to seek a pathological explanation of these simple facts. Moreover, with few exceptions, the descriptions of spiritual marriage which the great mystics have left are singularly free from physical imagery. So mysterious is the secret, says St. Teresa, and so sublime the favour that God thus bestows instantaneously on the soul, that it feels a supreme delight, only to be described by saying that our Lord vouchsafes, for the moment, to reveal to it his own heavenly glory in a far more subtle way than by any vision or spiritual delight. As far as can be understood, the soul, I mean the spirit of this soul, is made one with God, who is himself a spirit, and who has been pleased to show certain persons how far his love for us extends, in order that we may praise his greatness. He has thus deigned to unite himself to his creature. He has bound himself to her as firmly as two human beings are joined in wedlock, and will never separate himself from her. The great Richard of St. Victor, in one of his most splendid mystical treatises, has given us perhaps the most daring and detailed application of the symbolism of marriage to the adventures of the spirit of man. He divides the steep stairway of love, by which the contemplative ascends to union with the absolute, into four stages. These he calls the betrothal, the marriage, the wedlock, and the fruitfulness of the soul. In the betrothal, he says, the soul thirsts for the beloved, that is to say, it longs to experience the delights of reality. The spirit comes to the soul and seems sweeter than honey. It is conversion, the awakening to mystical truth, the kindling of the passion for the absolute. Then the soul with pertinacity demands more, and because of her burning desire she attains to pure contemplation and so passes to the second degree of love. 
In this she is led in bridle by the beloved. Ascending above herself in contemplation, she sees the sun of righteousness. She is now confirmed in the mystic life. Their irrevocable marriage vows are made between her spirit and her God. At this point she can see the beloved, but cannot yet come into him, says Richard. This degree, as we shall see later, answers more or less to that which other mystics call the illuminative way. But any attempt to press these poetic symbols into a cast-iron series and establish exact parallels is foredoomed to failure, and will merely succeed in robbing them of their fragrance and suggestive power. In Richard's third stage, however, that of union or wedlock, it is clear that the soul enters upon the unitive way. She has passed the stages of ecstatic and significant events, and is initiated into the life. She is deified, passes utterly into God, and is glorified in Him, is transfigured, he says, by immediate contact with the divine substance into an utterly different quality of being. Thus, says St. John of the Cross, the soul, when it shall have driven away from itself all that is contrary to the divine will, becomes transformed in God by love. The soul, says Richard again, is utterly concentrated on the one. She is caught up to the divine light, the expression of the personal passion, the intimate relation, here rises to its height. But this is not enough. Where most mystical diagrams leave off, Richard of St. Victor's steep stairway of love goes on, with the result that this is almost the only symbolic system bequeathed to us by the great contemplatives in which all the implications contained in the idea of the spiritual marriage had been worked out to their term. He saw clearly that the union of the soul with its source could not be a barren ecstasy. That was to mistake a means for an end, and to frustrate the whole intention of life, which is, on all levels, fruitful and creative. Therefore he says that in the fourth degree, the bride who has been so greatly honoured, caught up to such unspeakable delight, sinks her own will, and is humiliated below herself. She accepts the pains and duties in the place of the raptures of love, and becomes a source, a parent of fresh spiritual life. The sponsored day develops into the matter de venae gratiae, the imperative need of life, to push on, to create, to spread, is here seen operating in the spiritual sphere. This forms that rare and final stage in the evolution of the great mystics, in which they return to the world which they forsook, and there live, as it were, as centres of transcendental energy, the creators of spiritual families, the partners and fellow labourers with the divine life. 3. We come now to the symbols which have been adopted by those mystics in whom temperamental consciousness of their own imperfection and of the unutterable perfection of the absolute life for which they longed has overpowered all other aspects of man's quest of reality. The seek and ye shall find of the pilgrim, the by love shall he be gotten and holden of the bride, can never seem an adequate description of experience to minds of this type. They are intent on the inexorable truth which must be accepted in some form by both these classes, the crucial fact that we behold that which we are, or, in other words, that only the real can know reality. 
Hence the state of the inward man, the unrealness of him when judged by any transcendental standard, is their centre of interest. His remaking, or regeneration, appears to them as the primal necessity, if he is ever to obtain rights of citizenship in the country of the soul. We have seen that this idea of the new birth, the remaking or transmutation of the self, clothed in many different symbols, runs through the whole of mysticism and much of theology. It is the mystic subjective reading of those necessary psychological and moral changes which he observes within himself as his spiritual consciousness grows. His hard work of renunciation, of detachment from the things which that consciousness points out as illusory or impure, his purifications and trials, all form part of it. If that which is whole or perfect is to come, then that which is in part must be done away. For in what measure we put off the creature, in the same measure are we able to put on the Creator, neither more nor less. Of all the symbolic systems in which this truth has been enshrined, none is so complete, so picturesque, and now so little understood, as that of the hermetic philosophers, or spiritual alchemists. This fact would itself be sufficient to justify us in examining some of the chief features of their symbolism. There is a further excuse for this apparently eccentric proceeding, however, in the fact that the language of alchemy was largely, though not always accurately and consistently, used by the great mystic Jacob Boehm, and after him by his English disciple William Law. Without, then, some knowledge of the terms which they employed, but seldom explained, the writings of this important school can hardly be understood. The alchemic symbols, especially as applied to the mystic life, are full of an often deliberate obscurity, which makes their exact interpretation a controversial matter at the best. Moreover, the authors of the various hermetic writings do not always use them in the same sense, and whilst many of these writings are undoubtedly mystical, others clearly deal with the physical quest of gold. Nor have we any sure standard by which to divide class from class. The elements from which the spiritual alchemists built up their allegories of the mystic life are, however, easily grasped. And these elements, with the significance generally attributed to them, are as much as those who are not specialists can hope to unravel from this very tangled scheme. First, there are the metals, of course the obvious materials of physical alchemy. These are usually called by the names of their presiding planets. Thus, in hermetic language, lunar means silver, sol, gold, etc. Then there is the vessel, or athanol, in which the transmutation of base metal to gold took place, an object whose exact nature is veiled in much mystery. The fire, and various solvents and waters, peculiar to the different alchemistic recipes, complete the apparatus necessary to the great work. The process of this work, sometimes described in chemical and sometimes in astrological terms, is more often than not disguised in a strange heraldic and zoological symbolism dealing with lions, dragons, eagles, vultures, ravens, and doves, which, delightful in its picturesqueness, is unequalled in its power of confusing the anxious and unwary inquirer. It is also the subject of innumerable and deliberate allegories, which were supposed to convey its secrets to the elect, 
whilst most certainly concealing them from the crowd. Hence it is that the author of a short inquiry concerning the hermetic art speaks for all investigators of this subject when he describes the hermetic science as a great labyrinth in which are abundance of inquirers rambling to this day, many of them undiscerned by one another. Like him, I too have taken several turns in it myself, wherein one shall meet with very few, for tis so large, and almost every one taking a different path, that they seldom meet. But finding it a very melancholy place, I resolved to get out of it, and rather content myself to walk in the little garden before the entrance, where many things, though not all, were orderly to be seen. Choosing rather to stay there, and contemplate on the metaphor set up, than venture again into the wilderness. Coming then to the contemplation of the metaphor set up, by far the most judicious course for modern students of the hermetic art. We observe first that the prime object of alchemy was held to be the production of the philosopher's stone, that perfect and incorrupt substance or noble tincture, never found upon our imperfect earth in its natural state, which could purge all baser metals of their dross and turn them to pure gold. The quest of the stone, in fact, was but one aspect of man's everlasting quest of perfection, his hunger for the absolute, and hence an appropriate symbol of the mystic life. But this quest was not conducted in some far-off transcendental kingdom. It was prosecuted in the here and now within the physical world. Gold, the crowned king, or soul, as it is called in the planetary symbolism of the alchemists, was their standard of perfection the perfect metal. Towards it, as the Christian towards sanctity, their wills were set. It had for them a value not sordid, but ideal. Nature, they thought, is always trying to make gold, this incorruptible and perfect thing, and the other metals are merely the results of the frustration of her original design. Nor is this aiming at perfection and achieving of imperfection limited to the physical world quod superius secud quod inferius. Upon the spiritual plane, also they held that the divine idea is always aiming at spiritual gold, divine humanity, the new man, citizen of the transcendental world. And natural man, as we ordinarily know him, is a lower metal, silver at best. He is a departure from the plan, who yet bears within himself, if we could find it, the spark or seed of absolute perfection, the tincture which makes gold. The smattering I have of the philosopher's stone, says Sir Thomas Brown, which is something more than the perfect exaltation of gold, hath taught me a great deal of divinity, and instructed my belief how that immortal spirit and incorruptible substance of my soul may lie obscure, and sleep a while within this house of flesh. This incorruptible substance is man's goldness, his perfect principle, for the highest mineral virtue resides in man, says Albertus Magnus, and God may be found everywhere. Hence the prosecution of a spiritual chemistry is a proper part of the true hermetic science. The art of the alchemist, whether spiritual or physical, consists in completing the work of perfection, 
bringing forth and making dominant, as it were, the latent goldness which lies obscure in metal or man. The ideal adept of alchemy was therefore an auxiliary of the eternal goodness. By his search for the noble tincture which should restore an imperfect world, he became a partner in the business of creation, assisting the cosmic plan. Thus the proper art of the spiritual alchemist, with whom alone we are here concerned, was the production of the spiritual and only valid tincture or philosopher's stone, the mystic seed of transcendental life, which should invade, tinge, and wholly transmute the imperfect self into spiritual gold. That this was no fancy of seventeenth-century allegorists, but an idea familiar to many of the oldest writers upon alchemy, whose quest was truly a spiritual search into the deepest secrets of the soul, is proved by the words which bring to an end the first part of the antique golden treatise upon the making of the stone, sometimes attributed to Hermes Trismegistus. This, O son, says that remarkable tract, is the concealed stone of many colours, which is born and brought forth in one colour. Know this and conceal it. It leads from darkness into light, from this desert wilderness to a secure habitation, and from poverty and straits to a free and ample fortune. Man, then, was for the alchemists the true laboratory of the hermetic art, which concealed in an entanglement of vague and contradictory symbols the life-process of his ascension to that perfect state in which he was able to meet God. This state must not be confused with a merely moral purity, but is to be understood as involving utter transmutation into a new form. It naturally followed from this that the indwelling Christ, the cornerstone, the son of righteousness, became for many of the Christian alchemists identified with the lapis philosophorum and with soul, and was regarded both as the image and as the earnest of this great work. His spirit was the noble tincture which can bring that which is lowest in the death to its highest ornament or glory, transmuting the natural to the supernatural, operating the new birth. This, says Boehm, is the noble precious stone, lapis philosophorum, the philosopher's stone, which the magi, or wise men, find which tinctureth nature, and generateth a new sun in the old. He who findeth that esteemeth more highly of it than of this outward world, for the sun is many times greater than the father. Again, if you take the spirit of the tincture, then indeed you go on a way in which many have found soul, but they have followed on the way to the heart of soul, where the spirit of the heavenly tincture hath laid hold on them, and brought them into the liberty, into the majesty, where they have known the noble stone, lapis philosophorum, the philosopher's stone, and have stood amazed at man's blindness, and seen his labouring in vain. Would you fain find the noble stone? Behold, we will show it you plain enough, if you be a magus and worthy, else you shall remain blind still. Therefore fall to work thus, for it hath no more but three numbers. First tell from one till you come to the cross, which is ten, and there lieth the stone without any great painstaking, for it is pure and not defiled with any earthly nature. 
In this stone there lieth hidden whatsoever God and the eternity, also heaven, the stars and elements contain and are able to do. There never was from eternity anything better or more precious than this, and it is offered by God and bestowed upon man. Every one may have it. It is in a simple form and hath the power of the whole deity in it. Boehm is here using alchemic symbols according to his custom, in a loose and artistic manner. For the true hermetic philosopher's stone is not something which can be found, but something which must be made. The alchemists, whether their search be for a physical or a spiritual tincture, say always that this tincture is the product of the furnace and ethanol, and further, that it is composed of three numbers, or elements, which they call sulphur, salt, and mercury. These, when found, and forced into the proper combination, form the azoth, or philosopher's egg, the stuff or first matter of the great work. Sulphur, salt, and mercury, however, must not be understood in too literal a sense. You need not look for our metallic seed among the elements, says Basil the monk. It need not be sought so far back. If you can only rectify the mercury, sulphur, and salt, understand those of the sages, until the metallic spirit and body are inseparably joined together by means of the metallic soul, you thereby firmly rivet the chain of love and prepare the palace for the coronation. Of these three ingredients, the important one is the spiritual principle, the unseizable mercury, which far from being the metal which we ordinarily know by that name. The mercury which the alchemists sought, often in strange places, is a hidden and powerful substance. They call it mercury of the wise, and he who can discover it, they say, is on the way towards success. The reader in search of mystical wisdom already begins to be bewildered, but if he persevere in this labyrinth of symbolism, he presently discovers, as Basil the monk indeed hints, that the sulphur and the salt, or metallic soul and body of the spiritual chemistry, represents something analogous to the body and mind of men. Sulphur, his earthly nature, seasoned with the intellectual salt. The mercury is spirit in its most mystic sense, the synthesis or holy dweller in the innermost, the imminent spark or divine principle of his life. Only the wise, the mystically awakened, can know this mercury, the agent of man's transmutation and until it has been discovered, brought out of the hiddenness, nothing can be done. This mercury, or snowy splendour, is a celestial body drawn from the beams of the sun and the moon. It is the only agent in the world for this art. It is the divine human spark of the soul, the bridge between gold and silver, God and man. The three principles being enclosed in the vessel, or athenal, which is man himself, and subjected to a gentle fire, the incendium amoris, the process of the great work, the mystic transmutation of natural into spiritual man, can begin. This work, like the ingredients which compose it, has three numbers, and the first matter in the course of its transmutation assumes three successive colours, the black, the white, and the red. These three colours are clearly analogous to the three traditional stages of the mystic way, 
Purgation, Illumination, Union. The alchemists call the first stage, or blackness, putrefaction. In it, the three principles which compose the whole man of body, soul, and spirit are sublimated till they appear as a black powder full of corruption, and the imperfect body is dissolved and purified by subtle mercury, as man is purified by the darkness, misery, and despair which follows the emergence of his spiritual consciousness. As psychic uproar and disorder seems part of the process of mental growth, so salve et coagula, break down that you may build up, is the watchword of the spiritual alchemist. The black beast, the passional element of the lower nature, must emerge and be dealt with before anything further can be done. There is a black beast in our forest, says the highly allegorical Book of Lansbury. His name is Putrefaction. His blackness is called the head of the raven. When it is cut off, whiteness appears. This whiteness, the state of Luna, or silver, the chaste and immaculate queen, is the equivalent of the illuminative way, the highest point which the mystic can attain short of union with the absolute. This white stone is pure and precious, but in it the great work of man's spiritual evolution has not yet reached its term. That term is the attainment of the red, the colour of perfection, or alchemic gold, a process sometimes called the marriage of lunar and soul, the fusion of the human and divine spirit. Under this image is concealed the final secret of the mystic life, that ineffable union of finite and infinite, that loving reception of the inflowing vitality of God, from which comes forth the magnum opus, deified or spiritual man. This, says the author of A Suggestive Inquiry, is the union supersentient, the nuptials sublime, mentis et universi. Lo, behold, I will open to thee a mystery, cries the adept. The bridegroom crowneth the bride of the north, i.e., she who comes out of the cold and darkness of the lower nature. In the darkness of the north, out of the crucifixion of the cerebral life, when the sensual dominant is occultated in the divine fiat and subdued, there arises a light wonderfully about the summit, which wisely returned and multiplied according to the divine blessing, is made substantial in life. I have said that side by side with the metallic and planetary language of the alchemists runs a strange heraldic symbolism in which they take refuge when they fear, generally without reason, that they are telling their secrets too plainly to an unregenerate world. Many of these heraldic emblems are used in an utterly irresponsible manner, and whilst doubtless conveying a meaning to the individual alchemist and the disciples for whom he wrote, are, and must ever be, unintelligible to other men. But others are of a more general application, and appear so frequently in 17th century literature, whether mystical or non-mystical, that some discussion of them may well be of use. Perhaps the quaintest and most celebrated of all these allegories is that which describes the quest of the philosopher's stone as the hunting of the green lion. The green lion, though few would divine it, is the first matter of the great work. Hence, in spiritual alchemy, natural man in his wholeness, salt, sulphur, and mercury in their crude state. He is called green because, 
seen from the transcendent standpoint, he is still unripe, his latent powers undeveloped, and a lion because of his strength, fierceness, and virility. Here the common opinion that a pious effeminacy, a diluted and amiable spirituality, is the proper raw material of the mystic life, is emphatically contradicted. It is not by the education of the lamb, but by the hunting and taming of the wild intractable lion, instinct with vitality, full of ardour and courage, exhibiting heroic qualities on the sensual plane, that the great work is achieved. The lives of the saints enforce the same law. Our lion, waiting maturity, is called green for his unripeness, trust me, and yet full quickly he can run, and soon can overtake the sun. The green lion, then, in his strength and wholeness, is the only creature potentially able to attain perfection. It needs the adoption and purification of all the wealth and resources of man's nature, not merely the encouragement of his transcendental tastes, if he is to overtake the sun and achieve the great work. The kingdom of heaven is taken by violence, not by amiable aspiration. The green lion, says one alchemist, is the priest by whom soul and luna are wed. In other words, the raw stuff of indomitable human nature is the means by which man is to attain union with the absolute. The duty of the alchemist, the transmuting process, is therefore described as the hunting of the green lion through the forest of the sensual world. He, like the hound of heaven, is on a love chase down the nights and down the days. When the lion is caught, when destiny overtakes it, its head must be cut off as the preliminary to the necessary taming process. This is called by the alchemist the head of the raven, the crow or the vulture, for its blackness. It represents the fierce and corrupt life of the passions, and its removal is that death of the lower nature, which is the object of all ascetism, i.e. purgation. The lion, the whole man, humanity in its strength, is, as it were, slain to the world, and then resuscitated, but in a very different shape. By its passage through this mystic death, or the putrefaction of the three principles, the colour of unripeness is taken away. Its taming completed, it receives wings, wherewith it may fly up to soul, the perfect or divine, and is transmuted, say the alchemists, into the red dragon. This is to us a hopelessly grotesque image, but to the hermetic philosophers, whose sense of wonder was uncorrupt, it was the deeply mystical emblem of a new, strange, and transcendental life, powerful alike in earth and in heaven. As the angel to the man, so was the dragon to the world of beasts, a creature of splendour and terror, a super-brute, veritably existent if seldom seen. We realise something of the significance of this symbol for the alchemic writers, if we remember how sacred a meaning it has for the Chinese, to whom the dragon is the traditional emblem of free spiritual life, as the tiger represents the life of the material plane in its intensest form. Since it is from China that alchemy is supposed to have reached the European world, it may yet be found that the red dragon is one of the most antique and significant symbols of the hermetic art. For the spiritual chemistry, then, the red dragon represents deified man, 
whose emergence must always seem like the birth of some monstrous and amazing creature when seen from the standpoint of the merely natural world. With his coming forth, the business of the alchemist, in so far as he may be a mystic, is done. Man has transcended his lower nature, has received wings wherewith to live on higher levels of reality. The tincture, the latent goldness, has been found and made dominant, the magnum opus achieved. That the trite and inward business of that work, when stripped of its many emblematic veils, was indeed the reordering of spiritual rather than material elements, is an opinion which rests on a more solid foundation than personal interpretations of old allegories and alchemic tracts. The Norwich physician, himself deeply read in the hermetic science, has declared to us his own certainty concerning it in few but lovely words. In them is contained the true mystery of man's eternal and interior quest of the stone, its reconciliation with that other, outgoing quest of the hidden treasure that desires to be found. Do but extract from the corpulency of bodies, or resolve things beyond their first matter, and you discover the habitation of angels, which if I call it the ubiquitary and omnipresent essence of God, I hope I shall not offend divinity. End of part one, chapter six.